Right, well, thank you all for coming. Um, I, as I look around the audience, I see many old friends and new, and I, of course, the grandeur of the, the room we've chose to uh, stage this event in is, is, is doubly symbolic, obviously, for the grandeur of the Middle East Centre and the, the expertise it brings to bear, but more importantly, for the grandeur of my friend and colleague and his wonderful book, if you haven't read it, uh, Occupying Syria uh, Under the French Mandate, uh, which uh, I think both innovative and uh, indicative of, of one of the best places, apart from LSE, to do a PhD, the Polish Department of Science, where <laughs> we both did our PhD. So uh, this is... Um, none of them are laughing. Anyway, so uh, uh, Dan is going to speak... Have you changed the title? Why is Syria so statist? And nothing else. Pretty much. Okay, great. And he'll speak for about 45 minutes, uh, uh, which will take us through to roughly about five, and that will give us an hour uh, for questions and debate, which is what this should be about. So hopefully... Uh, we'll have enough space, so bring your ideas to the table. Once Dr. Neep, who is uh, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the Centre for Contemporary and Arab Studies in the School of Foreign Service, that's a mouthful, at Georgetown University. Thank you, Dan. Great. Thank you very much, Toby, for the uh, kind introduction, and uh, thank you all for attending today. Um, the last 18 months or so, I've been working on a new book project uh, for a book which is provisionally entitled The Nation Belongs to All, The Making of Modern Syria. And the aim of that book is to refute some of the um, common narratives, some of the com common myths about Syria um, that have been circulating in the media and within policy more broadly. And what I want to do in that book is take on this, uh, this uh, mythical notion that the problems that, faces, that are facing Syria today are a direct consequence of the fact that Syria is an artificial state created by the French, grouping together different ethnic and religious groups who hate each other, and that is the reason for the, today's civil war. And what I want to do in that book project is to talk a little bit more about, I mean, for a start, this argument is terribly um, it's ahistorical. Um, the idea that Syria, nothing happened between independence in 1946 and 2011 is simply absurd and untenable. The idea that Syrians have not developed over the years a myriad of complex ways um, of thinking about their nation um, and some kind of hostage to historical fortune seems to me fundamentally untenable. Um, so what I want to do in that book is refute those narratives and having written one book that Toby kindly mentioned, uh, which no one has read, I want to write a book that people read, so I want to apart from Toby. Um, I want to write a book that's aimed at a more general readership. Um, what I'm doing today is not a presentation that's based on the book project per se. I want to spin off a little bit some of the more conceptual, as well as empirical, um, questions that have appeared to me in the course of researching that book in a slightly more academic direction. Um, the presentation I'm going to give, I should say, is work in progress. Uh, it's not as fully polished as I would like. It's quite eclectic in its coverage. I'm going to be too... If there are any historians in the room, the presentation will be far too theoretical. If there are any uh, theorists in the room, then it's going to be far too historical. Um, but I'm all about disappointing my audience uh, according to an equal opportunities policy. So there you go. Um, I want to... Really, my question today starts with this idea of why Syria is so statist. Um, why is it that over the course of the emergence of modern Syria, the state has come to play such a leading and prominent role in the Syrian economy in particular and in Syrian society more generally? Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, this kind of overall problem of state expansion in Syria and the reasons for it. I'm going to talk about the existing explanations for that within the political science literature. 
Um, and I'm going to critique that and offer a new way of thinking about state formation, or what I'm tentatively suggesting is a slightly more useful way of thinking about the emergence of statism in, in Syria, and then talk a little bit, um, give you some more in kind of empirical data, uh, or an empirical account of this process. So I'm going to start the story today in, on, in 1946, when Syria acquired, acquired its independence on the 17th of April. Now, this declaration, declaration of independence was greeted with three days of celebrations. The streets of Damascus were adorned with national flags, electric lights, and portraits of Shukri al-Kuatli, who remained in office to continue serving as Syria's first independent president. With the national armed forces finally transferred from French to Syrian control, the Syrian army took pride of place in the festivities, and tens and thousands of spectators jubilantly watched their soldiers parade through the capital in their uniformed finery. The tank division even decorated a vehicle to look like a crocodile. And to the delight of the crowds, the mouths of the crocodile were mechanically rigged to swing open from time to time as it lurched forward. There were troops of Boy Scouts which were marching after the army parade. Schoolgirls carried placards with slogans praising the anti-colonial struggle and they handed flowers to the crowds, chanting slogans and nationalist rhymes all the while. Only our own efforts will help us. Our country's life is freedom. The central square of Al-Murjir, where in the 1910s Ottoman rulers had hanged Arab nationalists, and where in the 20s the French had gruesomely displayed the corpses of Syrian rebels, the square now thronged with citizens of an independent republic, listening to political speeches and nationalist songs until late at night. Men danced the dabki in celebration, and women yulliolated in sheer elation. Delegations from Egypt, Transjordan, and Iraq even came to bear witness to the triumph of Syria, the first Arab nation to achieve full, unfettered independence. Overlooking Damascus, on the slopes of Mount Qasyun, huge letters spelled out slogans that seemed to catch the spirit of the moment, the army, our struggle, independence. Independence seemed to offer the country a fresh start. Self-rule would soothe the still fresh indignities of the colonial past. In front of the Sarai, the former seat of French rule, a crowd proudly, uh, gathered proudly to hear quietly deliver the first presidential address to an independent Syria. Quartley gave his speech from a balcony on the second floor. He said, this is a day in which the light of freedom shines brightly upon the nation, a day of great victory and clear conquest. And Quartley emphasised that independence had been a collective achievement for which the whole country had, been sacri uh, had made sacrifices and took care to acknowledge the contributions of every member of the nation, young, old, Christian, Muslim. And besides peasants and workers who made up most of the population, Quartley singles out the role, the role of teachers, writers. Um, uh, he outlined the path towards liberty that began with the Arab Revolt in 1915, uh, uh, 1915 against Ottoman rule, continued through the struggle of the French mandate, and culminated in independence. He wove into this narrative the contributions made by each of Syria's geographical regions. And his list of the home of martyrs reads almost like a gazetteer of the Syrian interior. He mentions the battles of the Ghouta, the great revolt of Jabal al-Arab, led by Sultan Basha, the Hananu revolt of the north, the Saleh al-Ali revolt in the Alawi mountains, the plains of Homs, the valley of Hama, Talqalaq al-Mazra'a, the Hawrar al-Shaya, and finally the Qalamun. All of Syria, the nations were reminded, had suffered and sacrificed in the name of freedom. We are truly one nation, quietly declared. We have no minorities and no majorities. Now, Quartley went on to say that in spite of this achievement, there was still much work to be done. If they had closed one chapter of jihad it was for, for the independence, it was to open a, a new chapter to safeguard it. 
Um, and in particular, centuries of foreign rule and generations of lost sovereignty had left its mark in Syria. The people now needed to strengthen themselves to restore what colonialism had corrupted. And Quatley therefore called on the nation to, sell, uh, to concentrate its efforts towards two key pillars of independence. Now, the first pillar was to the need to usher in what Quatley called an era of building by fighting against the tendency to fragmentation and instead supporting stability, repairing the institutions of government to implement programs of reform would, he said, bring about the moral, scientific and economic and social revival that was needed to unleash the true potential of the Syrian people. The second pillar that he emphasised was advancing the economy in both agriculture and in industry. Quatley argued that it was necessary to overcome individualistic tendencies in the workplace by building on a foundation of cooperation, guiding individual activities towards helping the nation of the, as a whole. Public interest, Quatley said, had to be placed above private interest. The rights of the individual had to be equaled by his responsibilities. National unity was needed for serious formal independence to be made meaningful. Now, these two key pillars that Quatley identified in his main speech as serious person, independent president, the need to build institutions and the need for economic and agricultural development, these formed, I want to suggest, the agenda for a whole series of Syrian state builders, not just Quatley and the, uh, the, the national bourgeoisie, the anti-colonial national bourgeoisie that had led Syria to independence, but also the successor military rulers, the succession of military rulers that came out in the 1950s. Um, and really, these, this agenda set the um, set in motion a whole, the beginnings of a whole process of rapid state formation, rapid state expansion in Syria. And Syria, in many respects, is no different from other countries in the region in that regard. Across the Middle East and North Africa, after independence, we have an unexpected wave of institution building, of institutional innovation. Of course, under colonial rule, states in the region have been weak and fragile. They have very little organizational cohesion. They didn't have a great deal of infrastructural power. They didn't have territorial reach. Very few undertook big developmental or, or social uh, welfare tasks. But in the first 20 or 30 years of independence, states in the Middle East and North Africa underwent this intensive, concentrated burst of institution building that brought about a qualitative and, as well as quantitative transformation in their size, capabilities and functions. Now, scholars who have worked on uh, Europe and the OECD countries, they very usefully have a, a series of statistics uh, that they can draw on to demonstrate the extent to which the state actually did grow during this time. If we work in the Middle East, we don't have the statistical um, evidentiary basis to do this. But some of the indicative data hints at the sheer scale of state transformation during the first few decades of independence. In Egypt, for example, the public sector workforce increased from 350,000 in 1951 to over a million by 1965. In Syria, the number of state employees increased from 8,000 independents in 46 to 34,000 by 1960. And this increase in personnel was more than matched by the state's uh, expansion of a role as an economic producer. Um, the state fulfilled very few economic functions prior to independence, but by the 60s, governments from Egypt to Algeria to Iraq to Syria to Tunisia to Libya, amongst others, had nationalised large swathes of the economy and assumed direct control of assets, enterprises and factories in sectors from heavy industry to banking to tourism. Um, now, the... You might say, okay, but this is actually in itself not that surprising. I mean, this happened all across the world. This is a common feature of post-colonial state building uh, across not just in the Middle East, North Africa, but also in other parts of the world. And I think that um, 
This is also, to those of you who work in the Middle East, this is fairly common wisdom. This is received wisdom. Um, this is something that's been discussed for quite a long time. It almost seems to have fallen off the agenda as to why this occurred. Um, but I want to suggest that we don't actually know a huge amount of, um, about the reasons for this expansion of state power, as to why the state assumed the dominant role that it did. Um, we know much more, for example, in terms of political science as a whole, about how and why the principles of Keynesianism came to be adopted in a whole range of different countries, particularly in Europe, but also to some extent in the US as well, in the aftermath of the, of the Second World War. We know infinitely more about neoliberalism and how ideas of neoliberalism, neoliberalism have, and practices have spread around the world from the late 1970s onwards. The role of ideas is very important in those two literatures, how ideas fuel neoliberalism and um, Keynesianism. But not so much when we think about statism. Um, statism is seen very much um, often as a purely functional reaction to the imperatives of, um, of, of, of political imperatives of regime maintenance. Um, and I want to suggest that this is perhaps, there's perhaps a little bit more to this phenomenon than we um, first um, anticipate. How do we explain this, what is a really monumental shift, if you think about it, from this kind of minimal night watchman view of the state established in the colonialism to this very dominant role of the state um, in the years after independence? There's a fundamentally huge shift. How can we really explain that? Now, a few scholars have already um, for, you know, looking at me, not a huge number of scholars have already addressed this problem with relation to Syria. And there are three existing arguments that you encounter in the literature. The first is that this is prim the ex expansion of statism is primarily about political control. It's a political economy of regime maintenance. And this argument made by people like Volker Pertus in his uh, 95 book on political economy in his 2000 uh, chapter looking at imperatives of war building or war preparation, state building in Syria, you know, he's a good example of this type of argument. In that narrative, the expansion of statism in Syria really kicks in after 1958 as a consequence of Syria's union with Egypt. The idea being that fundamental nationalizations, processes of uh, land reform, which really begin in 1958, um, are exported from Egypt and then taken up in Syria and then enhanced and developed by the Ba'ath Party um, when it comes to power in 1963. Um, a couple of problems with that. Um, yes, that might explain why statism continues to play uh, a dominant role in the economy you know, because they've discovered that the state, um, state control of banks, of industry, is a useful tool for keeping the regime in control. Um, yes, fine, but that doesn't explain why they chose this particular strategy. Why not select, for example, I don't know, any of the other ways of which you can organize and run the economy other than statism. Um, we've seen that authoritarian regimes are very good at uh, experimenting, at deliberalizing their economies, privatizing certain chunks in a way that does not compromise their power. Public ownership does not, not automatically state, uh, translate into, into state power. So why is it that they selected this particular mode of regulating the economy and not another? Um, it also overlooks the fact that statism in Syria didn't begin in 1958. Um, it's true that in the 1950s, moves towards statism in Syria were kind of haphazard, they were improvised, they weren't terribly successful. But what's incredibly interesting is that there is a whole prehistory to the importance or, or the idea of statism in Syria that predates 1958. Syrian political actors, Syrian businessmen were already talking about the need for the state to play a leading role in the economy even you know, as early as the 1920s and through into the 1930s. This was a real, there was a real consensus about this 
about the need for the state to play the leading role in, in Syria before Nasser even came on the scene. So this argument doesn't quite explain the origins of statism. Um, the second argument that you find is that statism emerges as the consequence of a social pact or class coalition. And Stephen Heidemann's book, uh, which has a very long title that I forget, um, his 90-whatever-it-was book, um, is another good example of this. And he argues that the reason that Syrian political actors in the post-independence period converged upon the principle of statism is that there was a, a class compromise, if you like, between the Syria's national bourgeoisie which, needed to, which wanted to develop industry, but needed an, a domestic base of consumers to purchase its products. They needed a market. Um, so had an interest in supporting um, and using the state to help redistribute, uh, you know, benefit workers, give additional rights to workers, give them additional money so they could buy these products, and doing the same with, with peasants. So they had an interest in uh, using the state in this way. So there's a convergence between their interests and the interests of the kind of left uh, modernizing left, particularly amongst the military, who saw the instruments of state power uh, and had an interest in cultivating a political constituency amongst workers and peasants for the same purpose. So there you have a, a structural convergence of interests, if you like. Um, and this idea of a social pact um, is commonly encountered in the historical institutions literature. Um, I find it problematic for a couple of reasons. Um, firstly, I, I just don't like the term social pact. It implies that we have some kind of negotiations where peasants and workers are able to articulate their demands against state builders in some kind of way that keeps everybody happy. This clearly doesn't happen. The term social pact is never used in Arabic. Um, there's no discussion, of, no mention of this term at the time. There's not a conscious process. Actually, the, the whole idea of a social pact, as far as I know, isn't mentioned in Arabic sources, even in Egypt, where it's all about the social pact between Nasser. You know, Nasser gives the worker rights in exchange for their political acquiescence. And we think that Egypt has been the great example of a social pact. The term even in Egypt doesn't use a Quintanathan Brown until the 1980s, when it's used by critics of infitah, liberalisation, um, to make claims on the uh, Mubarak regime to kind of push back on liberalisation, go back to what they saw as uh, this kind of Nasserist social compact, but there really wasn't a compact there. Um, so this whole idea of a social pact, um, rational choice, institutionalist would say it doesn't really matter. It's, we can infer the existence because this is what happened. They both compromised upon their material interests and this was the end result. Um, so you actually have to look at the, you know, whether or not they consciously engaged in this process, um, which I find is slightly odd to not look at you know, people's own ideas um, about what they're doing. Uh, but methodological um, disputes aside, um, the whole idea of a social pact overlooks again that the class compromise in Syria, it, it didn't come from nowhere. There, were, there was a pre preceding um, discourse, preceding debates about the economy going on in Syria, even before the emergence of this social pact. The national bourgeoisie had moved towards the, the conviction for a state-led economy well before the peasants became a political force, well before the left became a rising political force, uh, particularly under Haurani in 1951. So there's a question of timing there, which is, which is problematic. The third explanation which comes into the literature is that statism emerges as a legacy of pre-existing configurations of the state. And the best and I think most sophisticated example of this argument comes from Heidemann and Vitalis in uh, the 2000 edited volume uh, in their chapter War, Keynesianism and Colonialism. Um, and what they do is look at how statism emerges in Egypt and Syria as a consequence of 
economic policy during World War II, and in particular the role of the British Creative Middle East Supply Centre, which was established in 1941 in order, to, in order for the, you know, the very prosaic uh, task of coordinating shipping in the eastern Mediterranean to make sure that um, the shipping capacity was devoted where it was most needed um, towards military supplies um, and to make sure that this didn't uh, at the same time the populations of um, Syria and Lebanon in particular didn't have to undergo starvation um, so there's this need to coordinate um, the economy in order to keep the kind of military supply chain going um, and what they did um, in order to ensure that kind of use of uh, Mediterranean didn't cause famine and starvation as it had during the First World War, um, is first of all, trying, the British relied firstly on um, free market, if you're not free market, but supply solutions to make sure that um, uh, starvation didn't occur in Syria and Lebanon. They simply imported a whole bunch of wheat, dumped it on the Syrian market, thought this would solve the problem, there's enough supply that will keep them going. What they found is that Syrian... Uh, entrepreneurs and hoarders would simply buy up all the wheat that there was, uh, would stockpile, would hoard food, and then sell it on at a grossly inflated price. You know, There's a real problem for profiteering at this time. As much grain as they would ship in, it would be bought up locally and hoarded, so it didn't solve the problem. What they did instead is int introduce a whole series of price controls, regulating the market, making sure that foodstuffs could only be sold at certain prices. They also controlled and started issuing Im uh, licenses for the importation of goods, so that there was coordination and effective um, management of supply and demand. And so what Heidemann and Vitalis argue is that this experience of wartime economic regulation, this very planned, very coordinated way, gave Syrian officials who are part and working in, this, in the organization as well, gave them a model, if you like, a sense in which they now discovered that the state could do this regulatory capacity, had this regulatory capacity to shape and control the market for the first time. And he says um, that uh, these Syrian officials who then went on to man the Syrian bureaucracy following independence took with them these ideas and used this as a model for developing state capacity in other areas. Um, and I think this is a really interesting and important argument. Um, I think there's a problem, it's always problematic, uh, but it has to be problematic in a couple of ways. Firstly, they argue that this is um, a way to refute Eurocentrism uh, because it shows that Syrian actors were involved in taking aspects of this model and then implementing them back at home. It's not simply that there's a vector transmitting, you know, Syrians aren't simply copying European practice, they're actually active agents in it. I mean, that's fine as far as it goes, I think it's fairly Eurocentric, it still has the Syrians being uh, very, you know, kind of receiving end of European practices. Because, you know, they're presented with this experience, they can draw on it and implement it at home. I'm not entirely sure how this empowers native agency. Um, it doesn't, they don't really talk about what Syrians themselves are thinking, and the mechanism by which these Syrians go back into the Syrian bureaucracy and then implement these um, coordinating functions uh, just isn't demonstrated. We don't have the evidence to say that. I'm not entirely sure why that this limited experience should be the kind of model for the construction of the entire Syrian state afterwards. Um, and again, it overlooks the pre-existing um, uh, features of the Syrian state which are already in place at this time. It's not simply that the Syrians have encountered during in their encounter with the Middle East Supply Center um, this notion of economic regulation for the first time. Um, there, was, uh, there were already um, ideas and practices of the state and its regulatory coordinating capacity that existed in Syria at the time. Um, so this is not simply a, a um, 
a kind of a process of replication or isomorphism in that way. Um, I th- and I think the Middle East Supply Centre pr- pr- provides an important piece of this puzzle of how Syria becomes so status, but it doesn't, it doesn't do enough. There's a lot more uh, inputs that are going into this process. I think that the, the problems of this historical institutionalist literature as a whole is that it focuses very narrowly on the state's economic role without looking at the other aspects of the jobs that the state does, the functions and the capabilities of the state. Um, and I want to suggest that rather than thinking narrowly about the state's economic capabilities, we've got to situate this as a kind of a subset of state formation more broadly. It's not enough just to think about the statist model of economic regulation. We've got to think about how the state as a whole acquires um, capabilities and powers which may enable it to play this functional role but may enable it to do other things as well. And I want to suggest that actually when we're talking about economic regulation, what we're talking about is a subset of um, a subset of thinking about you know, a certain subset of state capabilities that are very nicely captured already in the state formation literature um, which these earlier works tend to take a different direction from. Um, and in particular, um, the, perhaps one of the most prominent ways or most common ways of thinking about state power within the state formation literature is drawing Michael Mann's work, uh, drawing the work of my, uh, historical sociologist Michael Mann and his distinction between despotic and infrastructural power as a way to get some analytical purchase on this notoriously slippery concept of, of state power. And what Mann does is suggest there is a distinction between despotic and infrastructural power. Despotic power, he says, is the ability of a sovereign state to impose its will regardless of the will of the population. And it's a notion that he very vividly captures in this fearsome image of the Red Queen from Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland, who screeches off with his head to, the slightest, uh, to punish the slightest infraction from the terrified members of a court. So this is despotic power, it's violent, it's imposed by the sovereign on the population against their will. In contrast, infrastructural power represents, quote, the capacity of the state to actually penetrate civil society and to implement logistically political decisions throughout the realm. Now, unlike the colourful example of the Red Queen's orders, infrastructural power operates in more mundane registers, such as urban planning and road networks, tax papers and identity documentation. What these technologies have in common is that they penetrate society, they predispose the population towards certain forms of indirect management, and insinuate the reach of state regulation throughout its sovereign territory. And this analytical distinction between despotic and infrastructural power has been employed by a whole series of social scientists, from uh, Michael Mann himself, notably in the four volumes of his magisterial Sources of Social Power, and also by numerous scholars who have charted the expansion and deepening of state reach and capacity in cases from uh, Italy and Germany to China, Afghanistan, Turkey, Serbia and Iraq. Within the field of comparative political science as well, it's something even the Americans have chanced upon, which is fascinating. Uh, In 2008, there was a special edition in Studies of Comparative International Development, um, looking at this concept of infrastructural power and how it might be operationalized in order to make state power more measurable for those American scientists who are inclined to measure such things. Uh, This is Soifer and Howe in particular. 
And in, in the wake of that intervention, even in the US, political scientists of a more positivist bent have started thinking about a whole different set of ways in which they can measure state power quantitatively um, in terms of its overall national capabilities, in terms of the state's reach into society across different parts of its territory, and how the weight of the state can create new forms of identity. So they're trying to, even in American political science, uh, where I'm now located, so I have to speak to these people, um, this, the, you know, some three decades after its first outing, man's analytical distinction has become a, a very common tool in the uh, repertoire of many scholars of state formation. What I want to argue, though, before I move on to talking about how this fits into Syria, is I want to highlight um, a slight unease I have with man's conceptualization, because man's work remains wedded to a specifically neo-Weberian theory of the state. And my concern is that this very neo-Weberian theory, that distinction between infrastructural and despotic powers rooted in, prevents this concept being adopted by other analytical traditions that constitute the state formation literature. And by other analytical traditions, I'm not simply talking about the various strains of historical institutionalism that have emerged in comparative politics and sociology as well, but more broadly to interpretivist approaches to state formation that have become pretty common uh, across political science, sociology and IR over the past couple of decades. Um, what do I mean by interpretive political science? Um, well, to quote Beaver and Rhodes in a recent mapping of the field, they say uh, interpretive political science focuses on the meanings that shape action and institutions. And what they mean here by meanings is not the ideas, intentions or beliefs of individual actors, but to the sense-making processes that enable social practices to produce culturally valent effects. So this is building on the work of people like Lisa Wedeen, who is well known in Middle East studies, uh, a whole series of interventions by people like Devor Yano, uh, Mark Beaver and Rhodes, um, Ed Schatz's volume on, on uh, ethnography. Um, it's not synonymous, interpretive political science isn't synonymous with the study of culture. It's not just the study of ideas. Ideas can also be studied in a very quantitative way or a non-interpretivist way. And it's also not synonymous with, with postmodernist approaches. Um, it's focused instead on, uh, on, on semiosis, the way in which social practices produce meaning. Um, and this particular interest in semiosis has led interpretivists many and many interpretivists to kind of shy away from thinking about the state, from theorizing the state at a more abstract level. Interpretivists tend to focus their critical attention on denaturalizing and dereifying social phenomena which are, which are socially constructed. Um, you know, they're more inclined to disassemble the conceptual facade of the state into its component practices. Uh, they attend to the senses in which the state does not exist very much, rather than the senses to which the state uh, does exist. Just a couple of a uh, handful of notable exceptions, Mitchell, Biver, and Rhodes, uh, in that respect. Um, for the most part, they've proven reluctant to theorise state power at a more, at a more abstract level. Um, so what I want to do is, in the paper I'm working on, is to think about how interpretivists can think about infrastructural power um, without using the term infrastructural power and without importing all its conceptual baggage. Um, the problem with this, with the whole neo-Viberian argument, and I think there are four essential objections, um, it's the way in which they think about the state. Um, and in Mann's formulation, he says that the unique capabilities of the state's two forms of power are bestowed by four key, by four key features. That the state has a differentiated set of institutions and personnel. That these institutions and personnel are structured by a principle of centrality, in the sense that political relations radiate from the centre to the periphery. Thirdly, that these relations radiate over a territorially demarcated area. 
and that within this territorially demarcated area, the state has a monopoly of authoritative binding rulemaking. So these are the kind of um, this is kind of this minimal notion that neo-Weberians have um, stolen from Weber about what the state is. And I think from this perspective of interpretivists, we can criticize that for four reasons. Uh, firstly, you know, state theory thinks that power, thinks of power almost as an instrument. Um, whether it's generated by despotism or infrastructure, state power is seen as a resource that can be mobilized in pursuit of state objectives or as a weapon that can be wielded against resistance. Um, Neo-Barbarians hold that pretty similar to economic power or to military power. State power can also be quantified, that we can measure it by such proxies as the amount of national tax revenue, the number of state personnel, the size of the state territory in which these insurgent, in which insurgent forces hold sway. Um, even when they, you can even start to think about culture and institutions and symbols in this respect as well. Um, if you think about, um, in the sense that if you think about symbols, symbolic power, as a quantifiable resource that the state can mobilize, accumulate, employ instrumentally in pursuit of its own objectives, then even culture can become a very material aspect of state power, uh, much like economic power or military power. Um, it makes it very amenable to analysis from a neo-Barbarian position. So if you think about work that explores how state strength is enhanced through cultural technologies such as passports and censuses and, and land registration, work such as James Scott uh, or, or Loveman's uh, contribution looking at symbolic power, um, all this work does really is illustrate the specific micro-level mechanisms that enable state infrastructural power to unfurl across their society. So they're showing in detail how this happens, how state infrastructural power you know, re uh, spreads. Um, they're effectively complementing neo-Weberian state theory. They're not articulating an, uh, an interpretivist uh, alternative. You know, if ideas matter at all, it's only so much that they create, that, that they serve as instruments of power. Um, interpretivists, on the other hand, observe that power isn't just about an instrument. Uh, power, in the Foucauldian sense, is, is rooted um, and spread much, is, isn't, something, isn't simply a quantity that can be held in the hands of any one actor. Um, it's a structural phenomenon that is productive rather than simply uh, um, repressive. It can be used to, uh, it exists, you know, more permeated, is more spread more widely throughout society. I'll come back to that point in a minute. Um, the second critique is that, um, is in the neo-Barbarian neo sense of agency. If you define state autonomy as the ability to implement policies that don't simply reflect the interests or influence of a particular social group, um, as they do, neo-Barbarians think that an important source of state autonomy is the existence of collectives of current officials, state officials who are relatively insulated from ties to, 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 to dominant social groups. Um, so neo-Weberians tend to play very careful analysis of the shaping of state policies by internal dynamics, from the calculations of government officials to the options provided by expert knowledge. Um, and in cases where state autonomy obtains, the state is able to exercise agency by acting upon society, from which it is analytically distinct. Um, what interpretivists would do, in contrast, is draw attention away from these intentional strategies of state officials and away from the state per se and redirect attention to the clashes, contradictions and inconsistencies that are encountered by state strategies as they're inactive in the real world. So from this perspective, the state is not a subject endowed with agency. It's not even an arena for social action, but it's an emergent semiotic phenomenon, the effect of which is produced by micro-level practices and assemblies of practices. 
So we're taking away agency from the state in a way that allows us to understand state policy not simply as the unambivalent strategy of state officials, but it's a very contingent construction that is drawn in a complex way from this, the very uh, complex institutions within the state and how various strategies and tactics combine uh, in the real world. So here the state emerges as the effect of practices, not as an actor that produces them. So interpretivist state theory thinks that power is productive and that the state is an effect in some. So, okay, fine. How do we actually begin to leverage that for empirical analysis? And I want to suggest that a useful tool um, to enable us to implement these kind of uh, philosophical, ontological um, premises, a useful tool for those, who do, those of us who do empirical research, is to use uh, the notion of the assemblage um, to allow us to translate these general principles into empirical analysis. And the assemblage, as I'm defining it as a subtype of what Foucault calls the dispositif. Prepare yourselves for a Foucault quotation. Um, and he says that the dispositif, which is uh, usually referred to as, uh, as an apparatus in English, he says this is a thoroughly heterogeneous ensemble consisting of discourses, institutions, architectural forms, regulatory decisions, laws, administrative measures, scientific statements, philosophical, moral, and philanthropic positions. He says the apparatus itself is the system of relations that can be established between these different elements. Between these elements, whether discursive or non-discursive, there is a sort of interplay of shifts of position and modifications of function which can also vary, vary very widely. I understand, he says, by the term apparatus, a sort of, shall we say, formation, which has as its major function at a historical moment that of responding to an urgent need, an urgence. The apparatus thus has a dominant strategic function. So what he's talking about here is that this formation is not simply a small, you know, it's not reducible to individual policies of government in response to a, to a <coughs> particular social problem. It's much bigger than a specific program implemented by the government. Um, it's a, it, it escapes the control of the government. It's something that goes on within state and society more broadly. And this formation is not simply an instrument. It can't be monopolised. It can't be controlled by social actors. And accordingly, its effects can never be anticipated. And Foucault gives a really nice demonstration or a dis uh, example of um, uh, this ensemble, this formation, how it works. Um, in the ways in which in the 19th century, um, the... In the 19th century, the increasingly rational and scientific treatment of uh, lawbreakers creates this new category of the criminal. Criminals didn't exist in the same way before. Um, and the creation of this kind of new category of human subject, this new identity of criminals as being a type of person who breaks the law, um, is created by the state through its uh, attempts to manage law-breaking in a scientific manner, but also becomes real in its own right. Criminals develop their own. We have a criminal underworld emerging as a consequence of this policy. Um, this criminal underworld develops its own internal forms of professionalism, collegiality, and, and socialization. It also becomes the new object of scientific inquiry in its own right. And this effect, of course, had not been the intention of penal reformers or government officials or criminologists. They weren't trying to do this, um, much less the lawbreakers themselves, or one of the criminals, uh, 
or lawbreakers who are trying to create this new category. Um, but he's saying that this formation, this dispositif of imprisonment over time does adopt this clear function, a clear shape, a clear direction. And he says this kind of makes it possible to speak to, of a process of strategic calculation without actually having a calculating subject. There's no one behind this process. It's not simply the state that's deciding to do this. It's a question of the state and societal resistance. There's something going on more diffusely within society. So the dispositif, this formation for Foucault is a relatively coherent, relatively long-lived formation of discursive institutional and material technologies, not just about language, it's about practices as well. Um, and this idea of the, the assemblage, if you like, might be considered a, a mini apparatus, an apparatus of formation in its infancy. Uh, it's a smaller, it's a more incomplete, it's a more partial formation of, rec of recent, recent provenance that emerges in response to a newly constituted problem, and a newly constituted urgent need. And I think that in the case of the first Syrian, the first dozen years of Syrian independence, this notion of the assemblage has a really interesting utility, and a much greater utility than that of the larger um, dispositif. In Syria during this time, you have a rapid oscillation between civilian and military regimes. You have the new opening up of new domains for governmental activity after limited colonial governance. And you have the swift rise of left-leaning social forces against the established national bourgeoisie. These all serve to create a period of great uncertainty, innovation, and experimentation in the arts of government. And one of what I would suggest is that... Um, that if we start thinking about the state, not in terms of the expansion of infrastructural power, but in terms of these assemblages, it gives us a new perspective on the shortcomings and inadequacies of improvised practices of government in the 1950s. Now, these assemblages rarely solved the problems they were intended to address, certainly not without ambiguous and unintended consequences. But whether they meet or fall short of their targets, assemblages also make visible entirely new problem areas. And this line of analysis suggests that the analytics of power should not focus on the aggregate success or failure of state expansion, as, state, as studies of state infrastructural power usually do, but should focus instead on the unanticipated effects, the combinations and the contradictions of these assemblages that have been set in motion in response to particular problems. So from this angle, the ostensibly inadequate attempts to build state infrastructural power in late 1940s and 1950s Syria were not indicative of failure, but were productive of new contours of state power. And tracing the emergence, the contingent configuration, the interaction of these strategic assemblages provides us for a way of drawing the contours of governmental processes that traverse the state and civil society at specific historical junctures. Did I, speak, did I say I'd speak for 40 minutes? You've got about another 10 minutes. Okay, I lied. Um, what I want to do um, is briefly trace out how this works in practice. Um, I'm going to do it fairly schematically without a huge amount of uh, uh, Foucauldian uh, archival detail. But I just want to kind of sketch out what I'm talking about in, in very broad terms um, by focusing on two particular areas. Um, <coughs> Or uh, focusing on the kind of the areas of Syrian industry and Syrian agriculture in particular, in response to what was what I would suggest was the urgent need of the time, the urgence of the time um, that Syrian state builders faced and uh, they inherited uh, after independence. And this urgence, this uh, important need, was the need for national development. Um, which combines two elements: combines the national and also the development side. Um, 
Now, the idea of what the national was was already fairly well articulated by the time independence came in 1946. We had what emerged during the years of the French Mandate, um, which can be simply divided into two uh, periods for the, for the sake of my discussion today. The first seven years of French occupation encountered a series of major armed revolts, from, which, are, which are popular, um, which are based primarily on the peripheries, um, and which involved, to a certain extent, um, the urban nationalist elite, particularly in Damascus, um, but was taken up somewhat reluctantly by most of them. Um, the traditional uh, notables, for example, were notoriously reluctant to lend their full support to forms of armed resistance and upheaval that might also, in the course of threatening the French, uh, threaten their own positions in society. That's a slightly reductionist, but it will do for the sake of the argument. Um, after the, um, the Great Revolt was repressed so bloodily by the French, uh, the possibilities of popular uprisings vanished effectively from, uh, from sites, and the, even the elite leaders who advocate a more radical approach uh, to colonial rule, um, were sent into exile and simply weren't there on the scene. So a rather more quietist, a combinationist um, wing of the, of the notability um, led Syria from 1927, 1928 up until independence, focusing on this policy of honourable cooperation. Uh, the idea being that they would be able to obtain through negotiation with France something that armed resistance had never been able to, you know, at least some form of uh, withdrawal, and, uh, which would hopefully lead to full independence, much the way in which, uh, similar ways, similar to the way in which the um, Iraqis had done with the British and the British Treaty, although perhaps they wanted a little bit more in terms of independence. Um, the National Bloc, um, as a result, was relatively um, quietest, accommodationist in its policies. Um, but it was also important, it's very interesting to see the rapidity with which they adopted the framework, the national framework of Syria in particular, um, as the main framework for politics, partly because they were all engaged in um, negotiating with a single national power within them. You know. um, but also the national bloc and its members at this time were also very much involved in um, economic activities. It's from the ranks of the national bloc that Syria's um, early entrepreneurs were also drawn. Um, these early entrepreneurs were the first people to create new modern shareholding companies in Syria. Um, Lutfi al-Fars um, created the first enterprise in 1922, the Anal Fiji Company that brought water to Damascus, uh, National Cement Company founded in 1930, Conserves Company, companies for spinning and weaving. All these companies were founded at this time. 54 of such were founded between 1929 and 1947. Um, and many of the people involved, many of the shareholders and owners of these companies were very prominent in the national movement. Shukla uh, Kwatli, was, uh, his family had the Syrian Conserves Company and was known as the King of Apricots for his success in this field. National Cement Company was founded by Fadis al-Khuri, who was Prime Minister and later Speaker. Um, the director of that company, Khalid Lazam, the Red Millionaire, became Prime Minister in the 1950s. So there's a real, you know, relatively small group of industrialists here who were sharing mutually reinforcing business as well as political interests. They bolstered these ties with uh, personal friendships, kinships and marriage. A relatively homogenous uh, group, in fact. Um, and during this time, what they did is 
partly as a result of this homogeneity and the small size of this group, is they developed a, a relatively a common discourse regarding the country's industrial problem. And by the time independence came in the 1940s, they'd already framed the diagnosis of the industrial problem um, with a certain amount of sophistication. And they framed the problem of industrial development in terms of the obstacles that they felt had restrained growth under French colonial rule. And this, uh, the discussions of industrial policy in particular had three distinct elements. Firstly, these early industrialists argued that opening up the country to cheaper imported goods from Europe had decimated Syria's traditional artisanal production in the 1920s and 1930s. So they'd seen this at work. They'd seen how foreign competition would risk undermining new industrial ventures, the ventures in which they had a vested interest um, in developing. And this argument was sometimes bolstered by implicitly mercantilist understandings of the sources of prosperity. Um, there weren't any economists as we would recognize them at this time. The discipline of economics didn't exist in Syria, or even in France at this point. It can relate to France as well. Um, but one prominent Syrian writer who engaged perhaps more than others with economic issues, Nira Sharif, um, who, to read your quote, of this kind of, their understandings of the sources of prosperity, um, he noted that our wealth gradually dwindles by meeting our needs with imports, for most of our needs are industrial. He says, the wealth we accumulated after World War I was spent on imports without us being aware of it. It will be spent quickly after World War II if we do not consciously raise the level of our industry. So there's a real need, they felt, to keep um, uh, capital um, and use it to develop the local economy and not to waste it on importing goods from outside. Um, they were secondly very aware of the limited amount of capital that was available for investment in Syria in the newly independent after independence. Um, under the mandate, foreign capital had sought out highly profitable neo-monopolies, banking, mining, transportation, electricity, not industrial enterprises. And indeed, the emergence of the first shareholding companies in Syria itself was a response to the absence of productive investment. The growth of these companies was later fueled by the forced savings of the wartime period and encouraged by the national blocs to develop national as opposed to foreign industry. The members of the bloc were very careful to frame their economic activities in nationalist terms. You know, they, were, they were not simply businessmen investing, uh, creating profits for their own good. This would benefit the whole nation as a whole under French rule. Um, and was also one of the few ways, given the accommodations line, they could really distinguish themselves from the, from the uh, mandatory power as well. The 1947 Constitution of the People's Party, for example, notes that the national interest demands the encouragement and activation of local financial organizations to start large agricultural, industrial, and trade ventures that individuals cannot fund. They were very concerned to channel savings away from real estate and gold, to pool these savings and redirect them very rationally, very efficiently, because they held that productive capital was an essential precondition for modern industrial development. And the final common element in this diagnosis of the industrial problem was perhaps surprisingly the threat of rapacious profiteering. The Syrian business elite was concerned about excess profits. Can't say that nowadays. Um, what they had fresh in their mind, of course, was wartime hoarding, speculation, rapid inflation that stifled local purchasing power. Um, so the business elite thought that the excessive pursuit of profits would endanger the development of a local market for their goods. Nira Sharif again says that they said that they must quote protect our workers from a strong capitalism that only wants to increase its profits at the expense of workers and consumers. This is good. In America and England, capitalism is limited by the power of the government, public opinion, and the workers' struggle. 
Here, capitalism is free and entirely unfettered, so it imposes its will on the government, people, and workers. This cannot be. And even if you look at a number of leftists, much more firmly left-leaning critics of the time, um, they confine their critique to mainly exploitative foreign capital, not the weak domestic capitalists, as they saw it, that were needed um, to develop the country. So industrialists committed themselves to fighting high prices, to, they committed themselves to raising salaries, and to guaranteeing the social and economic rights of their workers in harmony with the general economic interest. It's relatively easy for them to do this, given the size of the industrial workers at this time. Um, so workers benefited from the first raft of legislation, um, labor rights, minimum wage legislation that was passed in Syria in 1946. Um, but this idea, this need to create a local consumer base also fed into their, uh, their, their agricultural policy. Um, and the problems of Syria, Syrian agriculture could be framed, could possibly be framed in very kind of structural, geographical, climatological ways. Um, Syria suffered, well, still suffers from erratic rainfall, periodic droughts, which made for equally erratic harvest. No one has done, I think, a study of how the, the semi-regular periodic harvests in Syria feed into social mobilization. Um, they really need to, because it's amazing how many times these bad harvests Harvest uh, famines, failures uh, are mentioned in the, you know, as a kind of prelude to uprisings, uh, then never really follow through. And it seems to me there's a real recurrent pattern here. But the point is, they could have developed a very uh, materialist, very geographical argument about Syrian agriculture and how it needs to be improved, but they didn't. Their diagnosis of the problems of agriculture were, was purely social. And they argued that the real problem was not so much Syria's climate and its rainfall about the problem of feudalism, of Akhtar. The fact that over the previous hundred years, first the Ottomans and the French had begun to modernize the landholding system, replacing traditions of communal land ownership with individual property rights in Syria. A relatively small number of families had taken advantage of these reforms to accumulate legal title to large swathes of land. By 1945, 52% of Syria's agricultural land was held in large estates of over 100 hectares, 33% in medium-sized holdings, and less than 15% was um, in the hands of smallholders. And this is an average level. In certain areas of Syria, it's much worse, particularly in Hamar, as is well known, where four main notable families ruled the roost. Uh, and the Jebel Druz, Jebel Arab, for example, the pattern was more equitable. Uh, not, as is sometimes thought, because the Druze were necessarily as a more cohesive, more friendly, more equitable society inherently, but because in the 1880s there'd been a peasant uprising and the landowners had been forced to give back some of the land uh, to the peasants. So there's a variation that goes on, but as a general rule, this is uh, uh, fair enough. Um, and life for peasants in these larger states is miserable, of course. Um, not only do they um, have to survive in a very small proportion of the crop, um, the arrangements of which vary from place to place. But in many places, the feudal landowner um, uh, reaches into every aspect of the peasant's life. Um, the landlord's economic power and legal authority allows them to evict peasants on the tenants on the slightest whim. Um, and these, the Syrian elites frames their country's agricultural underdevelopment as a product of this, of this feudalism. Um, landowners live off the rent, they were parasites. Um, if you own land, you do not farm the same way. If you farm, you do not own. And feudalism was also blamed for inhibiting innovation and installing fatalism in the impoverished sharecroppers. Um, a 1950 study by a guy who became the chief economist in the, in the Ministry of Planning said that peasants are the most archaic class. They stagnate in a perpetual cycle of ignorance, poverty, and servitude. 
This can be seen in the spirit mentality life method of working. In such a climate, no social or economic progress should be expected. Every year, everything repeats itself with neither the slightest innovation nor the least hint of progress. Um, there's a really nice study by an agronomist, Halim Najjar, who goes to a village which um, is probably more well-known, has become more well-known in the last few years than it was ever before. He goes to the village of Kafrnabal, which I'm sure some of you will have heard of, um, and points out that in contrast to the surrounding settlements, this village is quite interesting because it's owned by the peasants themselves, not by feudal landlords. And Najjar says... The village's character catches the attention because they are active and work with diligence. They are ambitious, connected to their land through their pride, moral integrity and honesty in their dealings. All these characteristics can be found in this village that is free from feudal tenancies. In contrast to the situation in neighbouring villages which do not differ in religion, education or race. Early example of Mill's comparative method. Um, and what happens over time is that this articulation, this framing of the problems of Syrian agriculture and industry becomes hegemonic, becomes taken up by a whole set of social actors from across, uh, the political, across this political spectrum. It's uh, taken up as well by uh, military modernizers in particular. And the responses, the responses, if we move on to the actual responses that, are become, that emerge in the 50s under Shishakli, um, are shaped very much through existing traditions or current ideas about the state. Um, are shaped through the idea that the state should have a corporatist character, firstly. Um, that there is a particular way of organising society according to its various sectors. Peasants, workers, um, employers. That there should be a system of negotiations and discussions in order for these various groups that comprise society to reach and develop a common position um, about economic policy. Um, we often think of corporatism as political scientists as something which is pretty unique to Latin America um, and to these you know, socialist regimes in the Middle East, um, but it's actually something that was pioneered in France. Corporatism became important in France in the 1930s as a response to uh, the problems of the Great Depression, um, problems of increasing labour activism, um, the threats of communism, and, and it provided a third way between communism and laissez-faire liberalism that it was felt caused the depression in the first place. Um, and a similar set of policies were implemented in Syria as well in the 1930s um, with regards to the organisation of labour, with regards to the organisation of, um, of um, employers. Uh, and this was something that Syrian, the Syrian national bourgeoisie became quite familiar with and quite happy with. Their problem with the corporatism under the French was that it was the French who were deciding uh, who should fill these various institutions, not that these institutions should be filled with people who were named by the state per se. Um, so this idea of the state playing this allocative role was already very familiar and goes on to shape these responses. Um, the other way in which um, these responses are shaped are also by notions of spatiality. When we think about how uh, the state situates, we think about statism, we think of the state in this very abstract sense as being involved in the economy. We don't think as much about where it is, about where it's taking place. Um, the Syrian state builders, post-independence, this of course, who are primarily drawn from Damascus and Aleppo, this question of how to develop the state um, is tied in with questions of where the state is and how it's incorporated, uh, how it incorporates the various peripheries um, the various peripheral regions of Syria, and also how it defends itself and its relationship with, um, with outside actors. Um, I've, yeah, I've gone over time, and I've not had a chance to, um, as I say, I'm still trying to work out how, these, how to fit together the empirical discussion with the theoretical discussion, so I can do that a little bit more in questions if you like. Um, 
But what happens in the 1950s that I think is particularly interesting, how what happens is there is a kind of series of experiments with ways to deal with these problems. There is an attempt at land reform that goes very wrong because the state realizes it doesn't actually have registers of who has what land. That makes this idea of land redistribution difficult. That prompts a whole wave of institution building activity in other areas. Um, there's a whole wave of activities in the 50s that emerge in response to very unanticipated uh, phenomenon. Um, although the private sector gets very involved in developing Syrian agriculture in the Jazeera, expansion of cotton, um, they're unable to deal with market failures. The state eventually ends up playing a very important role in mitigating the failures of the private sector and assuming risk and expanding the infrastructure <coughs> into the northeast of the country um, that wasn't there before and able to facilitate this. So there's a whole sense in which um, there's kind of sedimentation, if you like, of different responses to immediate problems and how the responses to those problems themselves create a whole series of, of knock-on effects of unanticipated consequences. So we have a very kind of tangled thorn of institutional developments and policy developments at this, at this time, which uh, are not coherent. They're not thought out by the state. They're not planned. But they emerge in response to these um, pre-existing ideas of what the role of the state should be of the problems, the nature of the problems facing the series economy. And the tentative and uh, tentative responses to those problems, which are brought together in this kind of bricolage type way of the existing tools which are already there. And the argument I'm going to make in this paper um, when it reaches its final incarnation um, will be that there's something really crucial in looking at the particular trajectory of these failures, of these inadequacies, of these improvised um, and contingent responses that in a way shapes in a very important way um, the kind of upward trajectory of the state and institutional expansion uh, in the 1958 period. So that this period of the 1950s shouldn't just be written off as a kind of experimentation um, and as a failure at state building, but can tell us something quite important and quite fundamental about the particular contours of the state and it's not enough to think about the state expansion in, in absolute terms, but also looking at the specificities of how the state configures and is configured around particular problems and responses to that. Um, I've spoken for far too long, I apologise, but uh, happy to take any further questions. Well, thank you, Dan. That's fascinating. In spite of best efforts, we have an hour or so for questions, so uh, feel free when you stick your hand up, just say who you are and kind of, I don't know, where you are in the LSE or where you are elsewhere. Who can be the first? John. Uh, John Boolin, just retired from LSE. Um, fascinating. Let's ask one thing in terms of models. Does the Soviet Union play any role? Or does a nearby neighbour like Turkey, independent, statist, play a role? In other words, people get their ideas from other places. Do they have to just be the colonial master? Secondly, I, li I like the idea about criminals being a product of certain kind of lawmaking. Could you say that attempting to enact constitutions, elections, welfare measures create different kinds of citizens? Does that mm. lead to an inadvertent, if you like, citizen production, which then feeds back into the system? But thirdly, can I just question this notion of assemblies? Because it seems mm. to me what you end up with is a narrative. Yeah. This leads to this, leads to this, leads to this, and it's all a bit eclectic, mm. and then that's not an explanation. So one wants to come back and say, why mm. do some things work? Why is a pattern a certain form? And does assemblies really help you in the human that? Doesn't it come back to things like political economy and you know, 
older things than Foucault? Yeah, great question, thank you. Um, firstly, on the models, um, Turkey is, is a key one um, because Turkey has a successful experience of firstly not being colonized, um, but also in this state-down, top-down developments. Um, what I've been trying to do is trace whether there is any connection with, between any kind of Ottoman legacy of the economy um, into Syria, because certainly Ottoman and the Young Turks have very clear ideas about state role in the economy, uh, which also come from a certain reading of uh, its list, I think, um, the German uh, economic thinker who is all about how the state has to play this role in the economy, and particularly the late developers. You know, it has to play this role in protecting local industry. Uh, and Sadowski, yeah, Sadowski suggests in his PhD dissertation that there is some kind of distinct connection here because the ideas that the Syrian uh, businessmen are coming up with are very, you know, they're very much in this tradition. I can't find a precise mechanism for that. Um, you know, I've got no evidence that they've, anyone has ever read this um, or indeed that they've been influenced by the Turkish debates. But certainly the model of Turkey is important and Syria's first um, dictator, um, the first... I mean, Syria went through many coups in the 1940s and 50s. The first one by Hosni Zaim, who's something of a comedic um, character in many ways. You know, he was, um, you know, had this wonderful, uh, he, he, he great sense of theatre. He used to dress in different clothes every day when he'd come out. And the Syrian press was fascinated by this, by his you know, kind of luxury of his clothes. He had a monocle um, and also had a very, invested a lot of money on a, on a baton as well. Um, but he, and he had these very grandiose ideas, not just about himself, but of, of how the state could transform Syrian society. Um, and you know, was one of the first people to start talking about, first people in power to start talking about land reform in a meaningful way. Um, and also his great part in the British archives when the British ambassador has dinner with him and they talk about, you know, they ask him, you know, are, you, you know, are you trying to be an Ataturk? Are you trying to uh, reform Syrian society from within? Because he's trying to, you know, he bans the Fez, bans the use of honorific titles like Bey and Basha, which are all tied up with these structures of feudalism. Um, and he says, uh, he says, no, I'm not trying to do that. I'm not trying to force women to not wear the hijab, for example. This is their choice. And he says, but I will say that I'm going to enforce on Syrians that they cannot wear the pajamas in the street because this is something that I see as the mark of great ill discipline. Um, so there is something, you know, the British ambassador didn't want to point out, and this was seen as rather dictatorial. Um, but so there is, there is a direct. Um, linked to Ataturk, certainly. Um, but also, but not simply to a kind of Middle Eastern uh, model of authoritarianism. Uh, Shishakli himself, and Shishakli is notable because he ramps up uh, authoritarianism by eventually engaging in a complete coup, making himself president, uh, banning all political parties, creating his own political party in the first way, and really expanding this kind of corporatist organisation of society in ways that look, you know, predate Nasser, actually. I mean, he's the first guy to do it, exactly. um, But what he actually does is send, at one point, um, a delegation to Spain under Franco to look at Franco's ways of organising um, you know, he's one-party rule. So there's a really interesting horizontal connection, or Mediterranean connection, if you like. Because so often when we look at the Middle East, we think of Middle Eastern authoritarianism as being a purely Middle Eastern character. But there's something going on transnationally here to do with the, the south of Europe, um, which I think is overlooked very often. Um, citizens, yes. Um, there's another paper that I haven't written, written yet about citizenship and ideas of the citizen in the 50s. Um, I spent a long time, far too long, reading uh, military magazines and journals from the 1950s long time reading these things, which are replete with ideas about what a citizen, citizen is um, and also what a soldier is, and the two are very closely connected, in the sense that um, citizenship and being a soldier 
are all about discipline, uh, are all about social organization. So you, there's a kind of correspondence between this very formalistic, hierarchical notion of organizing society in corporatism and also these notions um, uh, of citizenship as well. The state should be playing this allocative role. Everyone should do their job. Um, so there's kind of interesting content about, of course you can't say to what extent these ideas were taken up by the population, but certainly in terms of the way in which important state organizations were thinking about discipline. And discipline as well comes up with how the civil service is organized in the 50s too. Because um, there's a real push to create a modern, rational, efficient uh, civil service because they simply didn't have one at, upon independence. Um, and there, you know, the Syrian archives for this period are virtually non-existent, even if you could go and look at them. I mean, I've looked at the stuff in the 50s uh, briefly a few years ago and there's very little there. Um, but the newspapers were actually quite useful for as channels of communication between the government, between state builders and ministers and the civil servants. So you get this great stuff in Aleph Bart in 1951, I can't believe I remember this, um, talking about you know, giving civil servants instructions about when they should come to work, uh, when they should leave work, more importantly. Eight till two, not later, got to leave at two, full day's work. Um, about how the fact you can only use your government office for government business and you shouldn't be receiving private visitors or running your business out of the government office that you're at. Um, so this whole, and you have to be disciplined. So this whole sense in which discipline and organisation are really part and parcel of public discourse in the 1950s. Um, assemblages, yeah, I mean, that's a tough question. Uh, and you're right, and the, and the kind of where I'm at with it at the moment, it is in the form of a narrative. Um, because that's the stage I'm at. Um, I don't know if I'm... There's still quite a lot of empirical material I need to look at um, to get beyond that. Um, I think the devil... In, with this type of analysis as well, the devil is in the detail. Um, you know, it's in the kind of... Looking at the kind of micro-level mundane mechanisms and practices. You know, kind of doing Foucault analysis, you've got to get into the nitty-gritty of individual texts and, and practices, and I'm not at that stage to do it. To present that yet. Um, yeah, and am I saying it's just one thing after the other? I don't think I am. I think I'm saying that there's a kind of structure that emerges by virtue of the urgent need that emerges and this kind of formation that forms around it. And that's what I need to bring out more in future iterations of this paper. Um, it's not simply these um, having a problem and a response to the problem creates a whole series of knock on effects, it's the interaction and the contradictions between these different assemblies. So I, I don't think that kind of, kind, of, kind of came out in the way I wanted it to. Um, but I think contingency is something that's also very important. Um, it's not simply that, and I'm trying to get away from these ideas that everything can be determined by looking at class structure, um, as if it's, we can just read off what happens by virtue of people's material interests. So it's something that structures uh, subjectivities and practices and ideas about the state, which are also um, not just ideas, but also practiced as well. So that's what I'm, tr what I'm trying to get at, and I need to work harder at that, I think. Right. Yes, you, sir. Um, I'm first year undergrad studying politics in Iowa. I just wondered why you specifically chose Syria as, <laughs> as opposed to a whole host of Middle Eastern, North African states. Yeah, well, in political science, we make a big deal about case selection and how we have to choose the most appropriate case. And I choose Syria because I work on Syria. Because um, we have a certain amount of invested uh, efforts in, uh, in one country. And I, this is also a kind of uh, spin-off project from the book I'm working on. Um, why is Syria more interesting than other cases, I guess I could rephrase that as? Um, all cases are inherently interesting, aren't they? 
Don't you think? I mean, I, I can't. If I was working in American politics, I'd never have to answer the question of why I'm working on the US because we just accept that it's, it's valid, that it's important. Um, I think that there is something in perhaps refuting this idea that statism begins with NASA and then spreads across the region. Um, now this is why should Egypt have priority? You know, the Syrians were banning political parties well before NASA. Yeah. Um, so there's something there, and also not to. What I also want to get away from, though, is the kind of methodological nationalism by mm. focusing too much. And this is one of my later projects um, by focusing too much on the kind of domestic internal arrangements of the state and not situating this in a, in a transnational global context. Um, and I think what I can do a little bit um, is bring out some of those influences in Syria. Um, it's not simply about French policy in Syria. It's not simply about Syrians. It's also about these kind of lateral borrowings that go on as well. Um, so perhaps Syria allows me to do that. Um, it's interesting. Question at the back. Yeah, I'm Mary Morgan. I'm in the economic history department and the faculty for the. Um, I'm wondering about the congruence between the national domain of the state and the national domain of the economy. So one of the things that interests me, um, obviously, case studies I've done, I agree with all the cases, great things to be doing, um, is the way in which um, when a country becomes a new state, they think they can become a new economy. They have this incredible utopian <coughs> desire, which seems to be almost inevitably will class. Right? But one of the things that seems to happen is uh, in trying to frame the notion that they're going to be a new economy, they have this national sense, because that's what's going on with the new state, but very often they are faced with national regional economies. Um, I recently found a thesis on Sudan, which is mm. exactly about you know, should we be a national economy, should we set a regional economy, or should we actually con continue as a kind of a colonial economy or something. So it seems to me the sort of desire to be a list, to take a Listian view and be mercantilist and say, well, okay, we can we can trade or we can be self-sufficient is almost inevitably going to collapse because of the economy is part of the international economy, and so the pressures and the contingencies, which you point to, uh, are, always, are always going to create problems. So I'm just wondering to what extent that critical period through the 50s um, is um, a question of the, there being a, a misalignment between the nation as, as the political state and the nation as an economic state, and to what extent these might actually be two different percentages which are yeah. not quite good. Yeah. Um, I would perhaps go even further than that and say there is no such thing as a national economy. Um, it doesn't exist. I mean, it's, a, it's an, yeah. Uh, I mean, the national economy is uh, it's an abstraction, if you like. It's, I mean, it doesn't exist. It's some, an, something you aim at. But there is one economy. You can't simply, you know, the world is not divided into discrete. This is also a question about methodological nationalism for me as well. Uh, but you're quite right. I mean, um, and this whole idea of developing the economy is tied up with this question of the spatiality, the territoriality of the Syrian state. Um, and what becomes very apparent is that, uh, I mean, the classic example is the split between Syria and Lebanon. I mean, if any two countries should have been unified after the French mandate, um, I mean, the French and Syria and Lebanon, not simply the similar social, um, I mean, Damascus and Beirut are much closer culturally and socially than Damascus and Deir Azur, or Damascus and the far northeast of the country. I mean, this is indisputable. Um, but what what is very distinct between the two countries is that there's a very different idea of the political economy in Lebanon, which is more tied up with free markets. And you know, the customs union between the two countries ends in 1950 as a, as a result of this, because the interests of Syrian industrialisers are not the same as the interests of these uh, Beirut merchants. Um, so there's this whole, it's tied up in the 50s with this whole idea to create 
kind of carve out Syria's borders and make it a self-contained entity um, in a way that will prevent so there's this whole beginnings of uh, clamping down on illicit cross-border relations that really kicks in at this time uh, which is partly to prevent the Druze in the south from um, aligning too much or using the threat of aligning with Transjordan or fleeing to Transjordan in ways that aid certain Druze struggles against the, against the centre um, and also the smuggling. I mean, there's this entire... Uh, the banning of hashish in Syria dates just from 1947, um, which impacts the smuggling trade between the two countries considerably as well. So this whole effort... I mean, Shishak also imposes border controls in a way that weren't there before. He bans uh, or tries to ban uh, undesirables, such as prostitutes and criminals and convict, convicts from coming into the country. Um, and it's a desire to stop neighbouring countries, um, Iraq and Transjordan in particular, from interfering with Syria's internal affairs. So yeah, and this whole sense in which, um, I mean, the national bourgeoisie is trying to create a national Syrian economy, but these are people, primarily Christians, Sunni Muslims, and mainly, mainly Sunni Muslims and Christians based in Damascus, Aleppo, Homs and Hamad to a certain extent. And it's a very n- relatively narrow strip um, of <coughs> Syria that these people are coming from. Um, and it also co- corresponds to the parts of Syria in which the institutions of the state are the best established. This whole process of expanding the state into the peripheries of Syria and creating a national economy um, go very much hand in hand, certainly. I want to bring you away from Syria and back to Foucault. Uh, <coughs> in as much as I probably truncated where you were going to give your grand da-da moment and to kind of pick up on, <laughs> on, on John, I think you very powerfully situated the paper, not against, but a, a, a critique of neo-Viberianism, come towards interpretive stuff. But I suppose the crude question would be, what does Foucault give us? And the, 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 the niggling worry about my reading of Foucault, and, and, and you touched on it quite nicely, I think, that it, it's, it's about a moment, well, all the work, I suspect, is about struggling with the consequences of different moments of modernity within Europe. And, and, and different uh, you know, the, the, the co-constitution of the modern apparatus of the state with the modern economy with the disciplinary power that that brings now pick that up, put it in your rucksack and go to Damascus it, 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 what does it give us that neoliberalism doesn't and is, that, does, is it simply allows you to bolt on ideas no. <laughs> um, if I want to do that, I'd stick to the title, original title of the, uh, the book, Constructivist Historical Institutionalism, which allows you to do exactly that. <coughs> I had a brief flirtation with that over the summer, but our summer romance ended. Um, I mean, part of this, the way I framed the paper is because I'm now in the US and I have to talk to American political scientists. Um, so I'm trying to find some ways of talking about these things that do not reduce the discussion to one of ideas versus interests, um, which is very easy to get into that very dull debate. Um, and I think part of the attraction of Foucault is that it allows you to talk about ideas not as a simple, or talk about things not as simply a set of uh, disembodied ideas floating around, uh, but actually to talk about practices, semiotic practices, and how practices. Um, Discourse and non-discursive things actually are part of the same package, um, which is remarkably hard to do otherwise, certainly in the US. Um, I think what, it, what it's... I, I guess the advantage, or rather the different perspective it gives compared to the neo is that 
it allows us to get away this idea away from this idea of thinking too much about the state as a thing, which is the active agent, which is always there acting on society. Um, and to, you know, for all that they want to try and talk about the mutual entanglements and how state and society colonize each other, you do get the sense of duality, which is, which is there consistently. Um, and it's tied up with these ideas of the state being able to act upon society, that it has, is an agent in its own right. Um, and Foucault, as we know, is not terribly interested in agents. Um, and I'm not terribly interested in agents, particularly giving agency to something like the state. Um, and what Foucault enables you to do is look much more broadly at how these practices are not simply state practices, but exist at this kind of this level of, of, of government in the sense that the state is, becomes governmentalized, becomes a place, uh, a location in which these strategies and formations emerge, but so do you know, other, there are other elements that feed into that as well. It's not all about state strategies. Um, there's also other stuff going on in that contingent configurational way. Um, and it also allows you to think a little bit more um, in ways that are you know, about the complexity and uh, the heterogeneous nature of the state itself. Um, and very often, you know, often we tend to make this nod to the idea that the state is not a monolithic entity, that there are different institutions and interests within it, but very quickly kind of emerges as we're talking about the state as well, um, consistently. Um, and I kind of want to get away from doing that. Right. Charles. Uh, Charles Tripp from Sarras. I think taking back to Syria, but actually pursuing some of the things in a slightly different context of the notion of not simply a national economy, but it's the question of the state and its margins, and whether the kinds of things you're talking about um, look the same across Syria. And you prefaced your remarks, I think, very uh, uh, wisely with uh, a determination to be an antidote to some of the stuff that's been pouring out about fragmented society and so on. And yet, clearly, one of the things one needs to think about is the ways in which this status project saw all Syria as one, not simply as a kind of imagined Syria, but actually when you tried to expand the state in some marginal areas, were you actually thinking about the state in quite the same way? So clearly different treatments. And I think your notion of the assemblages, although it has problematic elements, mm. perhaps causally, it still does capture that notion that for those kinds of characters, you need to use this, and for those kind of characters, you use that. And I wonder whether that's something that comes out of leading, uh, whether those be economic measures, and I'm not saying that those uh, differently situated areas of Syria are defined in any sense in terms of ethnic or, or sectarian, far from it. I think it's often in terms of the political economy of the area, what people mm. are up to, whether you think them as borderlands and therefore full of smugglers and dodgy characters. And so it's, a, it's, it's a, I suppose, to get a sense of whether the state and the status project is regarded as the same thing by the people who are trying to implement it across the geographical extent of Syria, and vice versa, is it regarded by those Syrians across Syria as the same thing? And that might therefore produce some quite interesting uh, um, reactions and possibly overreactions from both the margins and from the centre. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I, and it goes back to Toby's point as well, I mean, the, if you, the typical way of, in which we think about the state and state expansion is it begins in the centre and then radiates outwards to the periphery that we have this penetration of the, of the periphery, and the state is able to incorporate the social groups it encounters there. And in Syria, those quite awkwardly coincide to a certain extent with so-called compact minorities, mm. um, which means that the, you know, it, it leads you to this way of thinking about state expansion as being incorporating the periphery as kind of ex 
victory of the universal over the particular in some ways. Um, and I think that, but if you, there is a, that's not the only way to think about these things. Um, and to give a, a kind of practical example, maybe, of, of what you're talking about, how the state looks different ways. We don't have to look at the state from, from the centre outwards. I mean, what does the state look like from the peripheries? Um, and there's this nice episode in, uh, or is it 1947, uh, uh, when Kwatli, first president, um, encounters, uh, gets into issues with the Druze in the south mainly because he's partly worried that they're uh, going to betray Syria and uh, rather provide a vehicle for Transjordan uh, and its expansionary uh, impulses. Um, so what happens then is that to balance out the, the leading family of the Jabal Druze, the Atrash, Kwatli um, funds, supplies, uh, arms to a second tier of families and this popular movement that comes into existence who are much happier to be part of the central state in Damascus, uh, based in Damascus. They are not calling for Jewish autonomy. They're not, calling for, not threatening an alliance with Transjordan to gain space to maintain that autonomy. They're quite happy to be allied with central authority in Damascus, to have local governors appointed by Damascus, because it creates a kind of bigger arena for them to act in, uh, which is forbidden to them at the moment within this relatively smaller area of the south of the Jebel Druze, because it's dominated by this other family and they have no way in. Um, so you have this whole sense in which um, that kind of state expansion encounters not simply strong men in resistance and is then able to um, co-opt some elements and play other elements against each other. But actually if you shift this, the focus of attention to the periphery and then look at how the Syrian state is constituted. I mean, if you're from the perspective of these second-tier families from the popular movement and the Jabal, um, your political geography, if you like, is completely different. You have Damascus over here, you have Transjordan over there, you have some kind of nominal border which is suddenly being enforced in ways it never did before, um, which gives you a very different sense of space and spatiality, and which are not entirely dominated by these, uh, you know, the kind of barbarian notion of, of territory or of sovereignty. Um, I think it's super interesting kind of look at these slightly different ways of thinking about spatiality and state, which uh, have become so common across many areas of the social sciences, um, particularly in critical geography uh, and Brenner, people like that, thinking about spatiality in a way that's not, not just about territory. Um, territory is part of it, but there's more to space than just territory. Anyone else? Yes, sir. When people come to Libya, for example, Gaddafi era, and there is a struggle between Benghazi and Tartus because it was also a tribal war. So then, when we take that distance into Syria at the moment, and when we go back to 2011, in the margins and periphery there, because the mainstream and then first Afghans is happening there, because it was partly a tribal reaction to the state-centric issue. So in this respect, can we measure up by any, any means possible the state power and durability of a state regime uh, uh, by its uh, sustainability of the central uh, sphere, which is Damascus? Hmm. So then you know, how would you uh, measure uh, for the success in the near, near future? Oh. Um, Especially in relation to Benghazi and the uh, you know, Trump, again, in your description, I understand there is hmm. much more long standing sophisticated state structure compared to, again, Libya. Yeah, I'm not, uh, I can't really speak to the Libyan case because um, I, I don't have the expertise in that area. And uh, 
Yeah, if anyone finds any good, good study of state building or alternative forms in state and Syria, I'd be super interested to read it. Uh, there seems to be a real dearth of research on that. Um, but certainly the, the, print, the kind of uh, logics I'm talking about are not unique to Syria. And there are these kind of spatialized logics that work, I think, in all cases of state building. Uh, in terms of the current situation, uh, not particularly working on the current situation uh, for various reasons, but um, I think, I mean, certainly, I mean, there's no coincidence that the revolution is a revolution of small towns. Mm. And this is clear and very obvious from the start. Uh, I was in Damascus for the first year of the uprising, and I remember my activist friends would come and we'd talk, and uh, they'd say, uh, the revolution has taught us the map of Syria. Now, of course, that says something about my friends, because they're Damascene, and they don't go out into the villages very much. Um, but the fact that these places that we were all glued to the television watching, um, these small villages, even from the Ghouta in Damascus, like a few miles outside the center of Damascus, we didn't know them. We didn't, not just me as a foreigner. I mean, if I don't know, it's fine. Uh, but Syrians from Damascus didn't know these places. Um, it was a revolution of small towns, small villages, and people became quite quickly aware of certainly urban um, Syrians, not just the educated middle class, but you know, whole, whole variety of social classes, became very aware of the fact that there was this real truncation of their understanding of the country. They were dealing, their knowledge of Syria on a kind of uh, intuitive level was much smaller, um, and there were all these things going on that they, you know, all these kind of dynamics geographically that they weren't aware of. And I think it's no coincidence as well that. Um, you know, the fact that the revolution began in Dara and not elsewhere is incredibly important. And it's not important because Dara is Sunni. It's important because the Hauran is a regime stronghold. I mean, this is the Hauran, Dara has not been discriminated against historically by the regime. This is you know, one of the places where Ba'ath Party membership has historically been very strong. Um, and which gives credence to the kind of political economy arguments of you know, the whole way in which liberalization has taken place in Syria um, over the last 10 years, what, 15 years now? 10 years. Uh, in particular, um, and the way in which it has corresponded to a certain or benefited a certain set of social actors who are not the regime's main constituency. Um, so the importance of that it begin in Dara is because it, of all the places that a revolution against the Ba'ath should begin, it's not in Dara, surely. Um, so there is this incredibly important spatial element to it. Um, and we know, it always strikes me that we know so much more about, uh, about the big cities. We know so little about the rural... Um, elements of rural life uh, and its variations across Syria. Uh, it's partly to do with the um, predilections and predispositions of academic researchers who like to be in cities. Um, but also, you know, there is a kind of real urban bias to a lot of the literature. Um, and one of the very many lessons of the whole revolution is that um, there's so much more going on at the local level um, than we're ever aware of. Um, I think it will be, I hope in future as people go on to do more research, um, not just in Syria but across the region, that we spend more time thinking about these rural constituencies um, and how they relate to state power, um, rather than just kind of homogenizing them into the rural, uh, looking at them in these kind of grand categories. Because uh, it strikes me that a lot is lost by looking at state formation purely from the perspective of the center. Um, and not just looking at controversial peripheries as well that might resist the state-building process and might build a regime, but also the precise way in which very local, hyper-local, if you like, configurations of power shape and structure that process of state formation and produce this kind of variability. I mean, people have tried to do quantitative researches 
uh, research into looking at why particular villages rise up against the regime in certain areas, why certain neighbourhoods do and certain don't. Is there a correlation with, with sect, with economy, with I don't know, whatever factors? Um, one of my friends in the US is doing his PhD on this, uh, which seems to me like a rather big task to do, but there you go. Um, you know, there seems to be no real statistical correlation. Um, my hunch is, well, that's not surprising, but we need to get at more than just the indicative uh, factors about these areas. Know a lot more about the local, the, how power is mediated locally through local um, social structures. You know, how the state works in the Haram with you know, the families in Dara is not the same as how it works through families in other, you know, the big families, the clans in other parts of the country. Um, tribes are not the same everywhere. Clans are not the same everywhere. Um, so I think there's a real important uh, point there. Yes. Rupert Wallace, History Postgrad. Uh, we had a couple of weeks ago a really interesting talk about um, La Belle Epoque in, in Algeria in the first 15 years after independence. So, sticking with both the Margaret analogy and, uh, and Hume, if I may, hmm. how do Syrians look at this period immediately after independence? Was it a Belle Epoque for them? Was there a Belle Epoque? Um, I mean, the amount of political instability in Syria during these 12 years that I'm focusing on in the paper um, became so pronounced um, through a series of coups, military coups, counter-coups, um, authoritarian uh, you know, movements between military and civilian regimes going backwards and forwards, a real political polarisation that culminated in Syria disappearing from the map, becoming unified with Egypt in 1958. So there's certainly no great nostalgia for this period. I mean, this is a period of great stability, instability, and Syria became a kind of byword for, for coups and, and uh, political up upheaval at this time. Um, if anything, sometimes you get, I guess, the first three years, the continuation of uh, the kind of national bourgeois, um, you know, the anti you know, under Kuwakli, you have the notables who are still in power before you have the kind of fragmentation, the rise of the left going on. A certain type of person likes to look back at this as being the heyday, the romantic. This is the period when Syrians had democracy, when that actually seems to be a kind of liberal uh, political experience for at least three years. Uh, of course, it was incredibly corrupt. Um, the contemporary critics are, are very... Um, take, you know, they attack Kuwakli at the time for being uh, nepotistic, for um, using public offices for the purpose of patronage. Um, but there's a certain nostalgia that goes to this period and to a couple of the other periods as well. So a sense of which... I mean, you wonder a little bit if the people are clutching at straws. Like, we've got to look at some period of liberal parliamentarianism when it existed. Um, but I think it's a period that gets overlooked very often, uh, certainly the, because people are so focused on the Ba'ath, 1963 onwards, which seems to be, you know, grab the attention. Uh, and this period seems to be haphazard, uh, it's improvised, and it changes so much, it's incredibly complicated. Uh, I'm teaching a course, a master's level course on the politics of Syria at the moment, 14 weeks in Syria, it's brilliant. Um, and my students, we did, uh, we did a week looking at the 50s, not in a kind of historical sense necessarily, but in trying to get a sense of what was going on in terms of upheavals and political developments. They were just baffled by the rotation that was going on in characters and names and keeping track of the rise and fall of different social forces. I mean, it's an incredibly complex period. And I think that uh, encourages people in a way to kind of overlook it in favour of uh, a little bit more stability. Right. Well, on that note, and oh no, final question. There you go. Leave it to the last. Two Was it real or 
Was it real or imagined? Um, I mean, the, there was a tradition of autonomy from central government in the mountain, um, which is spearheaded from the Atarash, who became the leading family in what, the 1860s or something like this. Um, so it's certainly, you know, certainly very good links between them and the Jordanians. Um, they were very easy to use, very quick to use this leverage against them. Uh, there ended up being, uh, it wasn't Kwatli, it was Shishakli who actually engaged in the major repression of the mountain in uh, early 54. It was one of the factors that led to his downfall. Um, and this period is super interesting because it's always referenced, um, but not a great deal is known about it. I mean, it was a mass Shishakli sent in the army um, and uh, engaged in this campaign of massacres and burnt scorched earth, basically. Um, I found one more detailed account of it in the memoirs of a, a Druze officer who wasn't there at the time, but who um, was close to Sultan Basha and had the account of what happened. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it is actually horrific, um, the, account of the, you know, the extent of the violence that was used in 1954. And what's really interesting is this point in particular struck me. Um, it's often assumed, the violence is assumed to have broken out at least in the historiography, because the son of Sultan Basha, Mansur al-Atrash, who was a member of the Ba'ath Party, was arrested by the regime. Um, so this is said to lead on to some kind of uprising. Um, according to this account, at least, the uprising began, and the military repression began, because a group of teenagers in the Jabal Druze were overheard chanting anti-Shishakli slogans. And I know it's a purely um, contingent um, echo, or foreshadowing of the present day um, but it did send a little shiver down my spine I have to say um, so yeah that anecdote will be expanded on in my current book thank you for the opportunity <laughs> to segue uh, the nation belongs to all which ta is taken from the Syrian nationalist slogan al-watan um, al-jami' wa din la religion belongs to God and the nation belongs to us all so that's where the title comes from was it? The Syrians always say it, it belongs to Kwakli. They, they always say it's a so-and-so's slogan, and then it, someone else ends up saying it. I mean, it's always a, it's a waftist slogan. It's waftist. I didn't know that. It's great. More transnational. You had a second question. Yes. No, no, no. Well, um, okay. Um, how did the, the constant rotation Pretty much yes, which is striking. Um, so questions of agriculture, the industry and the state, I would say, there is a real consensus. There's not a consensus upon who should be manning the state. So there's a series of purges of the civil service and also of the military during this time for purely political reasons, um, which is very pronounced, which brings with it a certain loss of expertise as well. But um, it's surprising, given the extent to which there is a dispute over political issues and becomes increasingly ideological over time, on these fundamental issues about how the state should regulate the economy. It's amazing. There's, uh, you'd have thought there would be more contestation, but it seems to be relatively subdued. Sir? Uh, Uh, society state relation and the uh, 
Hmm. Oh, it's an easy question to <laughs> finish with. Thank you. Um, I'm a little bit reluctant from drawing any direct links from this period. I'm focusing on the paper to the present day. Um, but one one question that occurs to me, perhaps I'll phrase it like that, is that there does seem to be a quite a distinct way in which people, I don't want to generalise, but in which there is um, a common way of thinking about the state in Syria that differs from how people think about the state elsewhere. Um, not in any deep-set cultural sense, but years of experience of having the state play this very dominant role um, and fulfilling certain functions about welfare, um, about providing... You know, subsidizing foodstuffs, for example. People have a certain central, uh, set of moral claims that they want to make on the state and how the state, and the state's appropriate role in society, what it's legitimate for the state to do. Um, and that seems to be, to me in Syria, quite well entrenched. Certainly um, not everywhere, and, I'm, and I am generalizing, but there is a certain sense in which there is a, a certain norm of state intervention that's accepted. Uh, a certain sense in which that's fine. Um, and I'm struck very much by the sense in which, despite the fragmentation and the chaos in Syria, um, the vast majority, if not all, of Syrian actors who are involved in the current conflict are not fighting to, to, to dismember the state. They're all fighting to obtain and maintain or maintain control of the state, with the exception of Daesh, but I'm, I'm not having them as a Syrian actor. <laughs> not yet, at least. Um, it may change over time. Um, and certainly I was... Uh, in DC, Hassan Hassan talking, and it seems to me that there are more Syrian, there's more Syrian involvement in ISIS over as time goes on. Um, but I, I'm not, I don't think that is an inherently Syrian actor. Um, so I think there's something really interesting there. Um, I'd be really interested, and this is perhaps something I might go on and look at after I finish this book, is these kind of experience of local government in Syria and local councils. Uh, also what the Kurds are doing, which seems to be discussed in the media, but there's very little substantial about this whole radical experiment in uh, democracy that they're allegedly pursuing. I'd be really interested to see if that is actually being pursued to the extent that um, some of the scholars and journalists have been talking about. Um, but it does seem to me that once, of course, who knows what's going to happen in the next few years, um, but will the private sector play in Syria the same kind of role of reconstruction eventually that we expect it to in other areas? Um, there's still going to be a whole, I mean, just the scale of the reconstruction. Um, you know, it's not... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's so many, so many variables there. Um, but, I, yeah, I, I can't answer the question. Um, but, but I think if we, we can't expect... Um, there's a certain kind of, I don't know, continuity there that people will expect uh, and the role of the state within that. I can't see it being, you know replaced by some kind of minimalist night watchman state the Americans tried to do in Iraq um, I, just, I, I can't see that actually having any legs in Syria um, we'll see, I don't know, sorry I can't adequately answer the question didn't have legs in Iraq okay, um, that was great, we need to thank Dan for I thought incredibly detailed, theoretically nuanced fascinating paper and thank you all for coming uh, keep an eye on the Middle East website for the next event that, oh, do we know when the next event is? Oh, I've got I'm being told I've got notes that I should refer to. Um, have I? Oh, the next Middle East Centre lecture. Uh, oh, yes, uh, on the 11th of November, Kuwait Programme Research Officer Courtney Freer examines the historical and current political role of the Ikhwan in states traditionally considered impenetrable to Islamic movements. Uh, I shall be chairing, I think, so I, I look forward to seeing you all there. I'm sure it will be as fascinating as Dan's paper. Thank you very much, Dan. Thank you.